addition to traditions of worship, okay, talking about the Jews, the Hebrews is written to the, to the Jewish believers who were sifting or going back kind of into uh, uh, Jewish worship. They were, they were jumping back, and, and, and so they're being pulled back into religiosity, okay, that's a word. That really is a word. You can look that up, religiosity, and they're going back to those things. And, and here's what we know. The early church lived in anticipation of Christ's return because Christ said he was coming back, right? And we as believers today should live in anticipation of Christ's return, amen? And so what happens is they, they hear that Christ is going to return, and weeks go by, and months go by, and years go by, and had passed, and Jesus had not come back. How many know that sometimes... Uh, you know, you know, when your hope is deferred, your heart can grow sick, right? You get a little bit tired. You're like, Lord, you, you said this, but it's not happening. Anyone ever question God on his timing? You know, I love that. I love that statement, you know, that God is, is seldom early, but he's never late. You know, he's always right on time and he, he works on his time, not our time. And there's a reason for that. But, uh, and so, um, you know, the, the Jewish believers there I I call them I'll call them believers because they believed in Christ but they had Jewish background they could they could smell the incense of the temple they could hear the trumpets and and you know and Jesus left us with this promise and where is he at you ever ask God that where are you at and they grew weary and tired and in, in, in anticipating his return so but can I tell you this if you're a note taker you can write this down through every promise of God and the promise fulfilled is a gap of time. When God gives a promise, there's a gap of time, and then the promise is fulfilled. And some of you get angry at God because you have to wait a day. You get angry at God because you have to wait a week. Or you get angry at God because he makes you wait a month. And we see time and time again in Scripture uh, where people had to wait a long time. Abraham had to wait 25 years for Isaac, the, his promised son, to show up. And some of you get upset when you have to wait five minutes in line at McDonald's. Come on, somebody, right? So Abraham waited 25 years. David was anointed king at a very young age, and it took him 22 years to become the king. You know, and, and you know, how many know that sometimes you can be in a struggle of life? Joseph waited 13 years, and God finally promoted him to be second in command in Egypt. But remember this, in between your promise and the promise fulfilled is the gap in which God does his best work. You know why? Because he's working on you in that process when you have to trust in him fully, when you have to put your faith in him fully, when you can't do it with your own understanding, and it's all about, hey, Lord, I'm casting my care on you. It's going to happen. You know what? He does his best work. Verse 16 says this, for people swear by something greater than themselves, in all their disputes, an oath is a final or uh, for confirmation, verse 17. So when God desired to show more uh, convincingly to, to the heirs of the promise of the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So what does all that mean? Today, when we want to say something, we, we take an oath or we say something like this. I swear by it, right? Come on, right? Uh, you know, what do they do in a courtroom? They hold that, that Bible up. I, 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 I solemn, do you solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, right? So help you God. And, and, and we swear. You know, we, they don't hold a guinea pig up there and put that out and say, swear by this guinea pig because that has no authority, right? 
It has no power. They, they hold the Bible up, okay, because that has authority. Or you may say something like this as a kid, you know, I, I swear by a stack of Bibles, as if 20 of them make more of a difference than one of them, right? Or, you know, maybe you've said this, I swear by my grandma's grave or whatever the case, you know, something that, that is high. But, uh, and here's, what, here's the thing. This is what we need to know. Jesus said this. He said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. That means when you say you'll do something, do it. It means when you say you won't do something, don't do it. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Isn't it irritating when someone says, yeah, I'll be there to help you or I'll be there to show up and do this and they don't show up. Right? Isn't that frustrating? So, and so in Jesus, he says in Matthew 5.37, he's talking to the hypocrisy a mentality he's dealing with that. He says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And, 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 and this is the way how good God is. Realizing man is slow to believe and prone to, uh, you know, to be suspicious about things. Here God takes an oath to verify his promise. This is what he does. He gets down on our level. He says, I'm going to make an oath to you, but because there's nothing higher than me, this oath is going to be by my word and what I say. There's no one superior to our God. So there's no other higher word than when our God speaks a word. When he says a promise, you can stand on that thing. And so he gets down on our level. An oath is a guarantee or an agreement. Verse 18 says this, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. Everyone say, it's impossible for God to lie. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast and to set uh, before us. So the Lord made an oath. He, there's two things. He made an oath, and God can't lie. So if God says it, stand on it. It's finished. Stand on it. Stand, stand firm, right? And, and, and so the Lord made an oath or a promise to Abraham that, that he uh, is confirming by himself. He doesn't have to confirm it. He doesn't have to say, uh, I, I swear to you on the body. He says, no, I make an oath to you, Abraham. I stand by my word because there is nothing higher than me. It's really amazing. Determined to show you and me that he will keep his promises as we are impatiently waiting you know what? We live in a very fast society, right? If our microwave is not fast enough, we get upset. If the air fryer doesn't cook our chicken nuggets fast enough, we get upset. Come on, somebody. Right? But the Lord, he takes an oath. So there, there are two proofs that his promises will come to pass in Psalms 110. Now, it, Psalms 110 is a messianic uh, uh, prophecy. Uh, man, you, you should... Underline Psalms 110, it, it points to Jesus Christ. It is a powerful bit of scripture. Psalms 110, verse 4, it says this, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. God's yes is a yes, and his no is a no. It's powerful. The proofs are his word, and he cannot lie. Man, that's a beautiful thing. That's why we can sing songs like, Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. You know why? Because he cannot lie and we can trust his word. That's why we can sing songs like that. 
So that's what the Lord did with Abraham, verse 19. So we have this as a sure and a steadfast anchor of the soul. Because we know that God cannot lie. We know that God keeps to his promises. Guess what? We know that he is an anchor to us when we need him. Amen? And in and, 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 and the catacombs in Rome where Christians hid during the times of persecution, there's, there's one symbol that's seen over and over again, you know, uh, early Christian symbols that you see, you know, different things. Some, some are boats because uh, Jesus called them to be fishermen. They use boats. They use fish, right? We know that. And, and, but we also know that one of the most common symbols that's seen in the catacombs is an anchor, is an anchor. And they would put these on the wall to say, hey, I, I'm anchored. No matter what storm or thing is coming, what persecution is, is coming my way, my soul and my hope is anchored in Jesus Christ and him alone. Amen. And the, only, the early Roman Christians, they were anchored by God's word and his promises that he made. So we have this same hope that he will do what he says. So the, the writer is saying, don't go back to traditions. He's telling the Hebrews, don't go back. Don't, don't run back. And to us today, don't go back to, to your old scene. Don't go back to partying. Don't go back to the things that you are familiar with. But be anchored and immutable and in and, 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 and the immutable, unchangeable, sure, and steadfast word of God. That's exactly what he's saying. The next part, portion of Scripture says, a hope that enters into the inner place between the curtains. Now, this verse may not mean very much to you, but this verse would have rang to the, to the Jewish believers because, you know, between uh, in, the, in, the mid, in the innermost part of the temple was the Holy of Holies. And you could not pass the veil. The only person that could pass the veil was the, was the high priest, and he had to go through a cleansing ceremony to do that. And if he had any sin in his life, you heard me talk about this a little bit on Sunday, any sin in his life, they would drop dead. They had the, the little strap attached to them, and if they heard them, if they didn't hear the bells ringing on the bottom, but guess what? They fell over. They would pull them out. And if anyone went in there and, and tried to get them out and there was sin in their life, poof, they would die as well. Why? Because the Holy of Holies, we, we didn't have access. So a hope that enters into the, the place behind the curtain. So our hope goes beyond the veil, which, you know, these Jews would have understood the veil, and, 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 and they understood that when Christ was crucified, when he cried, it is finished that day. When he died on the cross, the veil was rent from the top to the bottom. Now, what you don't, some of you may not understand about this veil. This veil was a very cumbersome veil. It was not just a little sheet. Most scholars believe that this veil was 10 inches thick. How many know that's a thick piece of material? And it took uh, several, several of the high priests to get that thing in position. It was, it was not easily moved. But when Christ said, it is finished, the holies of holies opened up for you and me. Not because I'm good, but because of what Christ did for us. And this would have been a radical to the Hebrews. For, for us, we say, without, we say it all the time without even realizing the reality of what it means. Because you know what? We've gotten so accustomed. Man, I can easily go before the Lord. I can pray. I can come boldly before the throne. And listen, they understood, man, it is a privilege to come before the Lord. Verse 20 says this, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on all our behalf. When I was in high school uh, and I played football, one of the things that they would always do 
is they would put the banners up, you know, when the team would run out. How many know what I'm talking about? They put the banners up. They put your, your logo, and the, the team would come out, right, and they'd bust through the banner if they're strong enough. You know, I've seen the little peewee leagues where they can't get through it sometimes. But what happens is the whole team does not bust that, that banner. It's the very first person that usually busts that banner. And what this is saying is Jesus was kind of like that person. He is the forerunner. He was the first one to go through the veil. And he broke that open for us. He's the forerunner. Amen. Having become a high priest forever after the order of, of Melchizedek. Uh, and, and some of you would say, wait a minute. And Jews might say this, wait a minute. Only a Levite could be a high priest. And if Jesus broke through the veil and he went behind the veil, uh, you know, he has to be a Levite. You know what? And he's from the tribe of Judah. Now, how could Jesus be the forerunner and a high priest if he's from the, the tribe of Judah and not a Levite? So, you know, Jewish tradition said that, that the, uh, 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 a, a priest had to come from uh, the, the tribe of Levi. Aaron's, Aaron's loins basically had to come from his hereditary. It had to be them. And the way you got to be a priest was you just had to be born into it, basically. So it's interesting. So how could Jesus be the forerunner and a high priest? And to answer this, the writer reaches back 2,000 years and pulls out this story of Melchizedek. Who is, who is Melchizedek? He is a, he's quite an important figure for, according to Hebrews 5.10, one's understanding of Melchizedek is an indication of how well-versed one is in Bible doctrine. What Hebrews 5, 5.10 tells us. In chapter 5, he said, you Hebrews aren't, aren't ready to understand uh, this Melchizedek ministry. And it's interesting to me because here two chapters later, he's like, I can't help myself. I'm going to tell you guys what's going on with Melchizedek. He just, he breaks it open right here. He can't, he's kind of like me. Just got to tell you what, what's going on. So here we are, chapter 7, the priestly order of Melchizedek. So we understand this. And so who is this guy? Give you a little context right here. In Genesis chapter 14, several kings had invaded the area around Sodom and Gomorrah. This is about around the time of Abraham, okay, uh, 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 conquering five city-states in, in the process. Four kings whipped five kings and took hostages and all of their goods. There was wars and rumors of wars back in the day, even back then. And, and one of those kings took a, a man by the name of Lot. Why is that important? Because that's Abraham's nephew, right? How many know that story? And that's Abraham's nephew. And though they had disputes at times, Abraham loved his nephew. So Abraham, listen to this. This is an amazing story. So Abraham trained three, uh, 318 of his servants to rescue Lot. It's pretty amazing, right? I'm going to go get my, my nephew. He couldn't depend on the U.S. government or the Navy SEALs or the Army Rangers to go do it. He said, no, 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 I'm going to train 318 of my servants, and we're going to go get Lot, Lord willing, and he's going he's gonna to bless us and go before us. And that, you know, it's, it's interesting. So you got 318, uh, I guess, militia-trained kind of servants going in to face the armies of four kings. Seems really fair, right? God likes those odds. He always likes those odds, Right? When it seems lopsided, that's where God can be his best. And, and just the way God likes it, Scripture tells us that Abraham not only got Lot, but he got all the people that had been taken hostage and all the materials and the goods and brought them back. That's pretty amazing, right? That's, that's pretty amazing to even, even think about. So, But this is interesting. On his way back home from this battle, he met this mysterious person named Melchizedek. So 
So, and, and I said this earlier, two chapters ago, the writer of Hebrews told them, hey, you guys are not ready to learn about Melchizedek. But here he is. He's like, fine. I'm just going to lay it out there. How many know sometimes you just got to lay it out there? All right. So, so verse 1 in, in chapter 7 says this. For this, Melchizedek, king of Salem. So Melchizedek was the king of Salem. Or, if you want to put it in modern terms, Jerusalem. Everyone say Jerusalem. <laughs> Salem, okay? And, and, and Melchizedek was the king of Salem or Jerusalem. And Salem in Hebrew means this, peace. Everyone say peace. All right? And, and Jeru means God will uphold or God will uplift. How many know that God will uphold peace in Jerusalem one day? Amen? All right? You know, in the millennium, we're going to reign. There will be a new Jerusalem and a new earth. Come on, somebody, right? And there will be perfect peace there. Jerusalem is called the city uh, of the great king. Thus, Melchizedek was the king of, uh, of the great king. So he, he was high. He was, he was king. Everyone say, Melchizedek was king. That's a big word, I know. Oh, you did good. You, you did good. Here's the second part of that. Priest of the most high God. Did you catch that? So he's a king, and now he's a priest of the most high God. Melchizedek is a priest. Wait, the Jews would say, time out. I don't like what you're saying here because you cannot be both king and priest, right? I talked a little bit about this last week um, because the law forbid that. Matter of fact, you remember I talked a little bit about it with Uzziah. Uzziah, man, the kingdom was going good. He was the king. He was rocking and rolling. Money was up. People were happy, right? Everything was great. And he got to the place. He's like, I'm going to go do this priestly duty in, in, the, uh, uh, in the temple. And he went and did it, and then he was smitten with leprosy. Why? Because he was doing something that he was not supposed to do. And he got leprosy. See, you could, you could be a king and a prophet. That's what David was. And you could be a priest and a prophet like Aaron, but you cannot be a king and a priest. Why? God doesn't want the priest to get into politics. Come on, somebody. You know what irritates me? When pastors use their pulpit as a political statement. I'm being real. And very seldom will you ever hear me raise my voice about politics because you know what? I've learned the answer's not the donkey, the answer's not the elephant, the, don the answer is the Lamb of God. Amen? Amen? I am called to preach, not run a political rally. And I answer to him, and that's more important than any of those crazy people in Washington. All right, I'll just leave that alone right there. So, uh, so why doesn't God want the priest to get into politics? Well, here's what I've learned, and I've seen many pastors get into this. They get into it, and they get on, on news shows, and they think that they're going to try to do good, and it begins to eat at them, and it begins to wear at them, and the love of Christ that should be in them turns into hate, and they start spewing mean words about people. Come on, somebody. You know I'm getting down where the rubber meets the road. And, and the, the truth of the matter is this. I'm called to preach and not to politics. And let me tell you something. My politics, politics can affect the way that I preach. But when I preach, uh, uh, my, polit my, my politics shouldn't affect the way that I preach. Amen? So I see pastors all the time doing this on the news, and it, it never ends well. And I'm not 
Uh, I'm not take, uh, talking about standing up for injustices like, like things like murder, abortion, and things like that, okay? When you, the Bible says we should stand for injustices, right? I'm not talking about those things. I'm not talking about those things. But I, I am, I'm just saying, you know, we ought not mix those things. It's, an, it's dangerous to mix politics and preaching. It'll eat you up. Just ask Uzziah, right? He was ate up with leprosy. But Melchizedek is an entirely different case. He's the priest of the Most High, and he's also the king of Salem. This is interesting, right? This is, kind of blows your mind. And he met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Verse 2, and to Abraham uh, apportioned a, a tenth part of everything. All right, Pastor, you had me till you said that right there. Who is Melchizedek? According to this passage, a little bit further it says this. He doesn't have a father or a mother, okay? He doesn't have a beginning or an end. This is all we know about him is this, this story. This is, this is interesting. There's not a whole lot. He, he is like the son of God, uh, abiding a, a, a priest continually, okay? So, so here's what, I'll just give you my, my view on this, okay? And I'll give, you, I'll give you two little opposing views here, but this is my personal view. I have a tendency to believe that what, what Abraham saw that day was a Christophany. What is that? That is a, a, a Christ in the Old Testament showing up. And, and, and there's some proof in that, I believe. Um, you know, he didn't have a father or mother. He doesn't have a beginning or anything. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, right? He, he is continual. He's like the Son of God, abiding high priest. What does that mean? You know, Jacob, I believe, when he wrestled with the angel, I believe he wrestled with a Christophany that day, okay, a, a picture of Christ in the Old Testament. And, and so, uh, so others would say, would say this. They believe that it's just a picture, and they would say this, we have no record of his parents, so we don't have any genealogy. So we don't know his mom and dad. We don't know when he came and all this. So, and I don't argue that point, but we do see Abraham. This is where, this is where it gets nitty-gritty right here. But we do see Abraham bowing down to him and giving him a tenth and worshiping him. It's interesting. So why would a man called the friend of God just worship another person? So it gives you a little, little thought process there. So he is... First, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning uh, or of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God, he continues a priest forever. So king of righteousness and king of peace. Boy, that sounds an awful lot like Jesus, doesn't it? King of righteousness, king of peace. There's only one who can truly be called the king of peace and the, and, and the prince of peace, and that's Jesus Christ. Right? And there's only one uh, whose name shall be called the Lord of righteousness, Jeremiah says in, in Jeremiah 23, 6. And his name is Jesus Christ. So notice the order here is the king of righteousness before he's called the king of Salem or the king of peace. There cannot be peace. Listen to me. There cannot be peace in your life until there is righteousness. You want peace in your life? Start with righteousness. You cannot have peace with compromise in your life. You will have peace when you have consecration and repentance in your life. You cannot have peace by working deals with the enemy 
For there is no peace in the wicked, Isaiah 48, 22 says. Well, you know, devil, I'll, I'll do this and I'll, I'll get peace this way, right? One must have righteousness before one can have true peace, be it internally or internationally. I don't care how you want to look at it. Hey, we have to be right. Uh, blessed is the nation, right, who, who calls God their Lord, right, who calls the Lord. And, 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 and God will be, when we are a righteous nation, God will give us peace. We may not be at war, but listen, we're at a spiritual war right now in this nation. King of righteousness is what we will call Jesus in the millennium. Matter of fact, that word, listen, you ought to get to know this. If you're a believer, you ought to get to know this word very well. It's Jehovah Sitkanu. Everyone say Jehovah Sitkanu. You know what that is? King of righteousness. And that is what we will call him. It's what scripture says. Verse 4 says this. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. Abraham, Father Abraham, right? Number one seller in, in children's church song history, right? Was on number one radio charts for many, many years. Father Abraham had many sons, right? And, and the nation of Israel was born from his loins. It's interesting, giving 10% giving 10% of the spoils to Melchizedek. And, and this is before the law was given and, and, it, and, and after it was given and, and the, before, before it was even required. Some people would say this. I don't believe in tithing. Some people say because it's not, uh, it, it's, it's part of the law. It's part of the Old Testament system. But here, predating the Old Testament, the Mosaic, the, the, the Levitical law, predating that, we see who? Abraham, the one who believed, Romans tells us, the one who believed first, tithing, okay? Uh, and so that, that's an interesting thing that we, ha we cannot just dismiss. Abraham, 500 years earlier than the law was giving, there he is giving a tithe, not because he was commanded to, but because he felt like he needed to. Amen? Tithing precedes the law in Abraham, okay? It, it, it is the law, it, and, and tithing is in the law and, and was in effect after the law as seen by Jesus' words when he, when he said, don't be like the Pharisees because the, they were tithing on their mint and their cumin and their spices, but they were ignoring weightier matter issues. And so he's saying, don't be like them but, uh, of, of righteousness and, and mercy. God is not after your money. Listen to me. Hear me out. God is not after your money. This is where a lot of you guys want to tune me out. God is not after your money. God is after your heart. That's it, plain and simple. The God of the universe created you, created everything, does not need this world's system and money. Matter of fact, the things that we call valuable here on earth, gold, man, his streets are made of gold. He, he, he doesn't need, you know, he owns the cattle of a thousand hills, right? And so this is, this is super interesting to me. Uh, you know, so he's after your heart. Jesus said this in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon or money. Didn't say the devil. He said <laughs> money. He's, 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 getting, he's getting right down to the nitty gritty of who we are. Some of you are, are like, man, I, I don't know what to think about this. Well, it's the word of God. It rightly divides, and, man, it, we, we've got to take it all in. You've got to preach all aspects of the word, right? And after defeating these five kings, check this out. 
and getting Lot out of harm's way, the king, the king of Sodom and, Sodom and Gomorrah came to Abraham and said, hey, I, I will give you the riches and spoils if you will give back these people. And Abraham instead gave to God, showing his need for God is greater than his need for a worldly system. He said, hey, I, I'm not going to let give you the satisfaction of knowing that you made me rich because I trust the one true God. I will not let this king of Sodom make me rich, but I'll let God bless me in my obedience. God says, you know, in Malachi 3.10, God says, test me on this. Bring, bring me the tithe and see if I will not bless you so, uh, so much that you will need to add barns to contain the blessings that will come your way. God is after your heart. God is after your heart. You see, that, that's a tough one for a lot of people. A lot of people struggle with that. Listen to me. Listen to me. Man, it, it, God wants to bless you in 90%. And it seems, it seems like it doesn't make sense. When you give God the tenth, when you give God the first, this is what happens. He blesses the 90%. And every time, listen to me. I'm living proof to this. I've lived this over and over. I have never went without what I needed. I've went without what I wanted, but I've never went without what I needed. God said, test me on this. Try me on this and watch and see what I can do. He's after your heart, all right? Verse 5 says this, and those descendants of Levi who received this priestly office have commandments in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers. Uh, though uh, these also are descended from Abraham. Talking about the priests, they're all, everybody's from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descendant from them received tithes from Abraham and is blessed whom he had the promises. Verse 7, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior, right? Verse 8, in the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified uh, uh, that he lives. Verse 9, one might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. Saying this, hey, you were paying tithe because Abraham did it first. Okay, this is bigger than the law. This is bigger than law is what he's saying. Verse 10, for he was still in the loins of his ancestors when Melchizedek met him. He's saying, all you priests that are paying tithe right now, you guys were a gleam in, in, in Abraham's eyes. You, you, weren't, you weren't even existing yet when Abraham paid his first tithe. Not only did Abraham tithe to Melchizedek, but Abraham, being the father of the nation of Israel, did so. The entire Levitical priesthood did as well. We know that because it's written in the law. Further proof that Melchizedek was indeed worthy of great honor. So here's the next portion. If you need a subheading here, Jesus compared to Melchizedek, okay? Verse 11 says this. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law. But further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek. Rather than one named after the order of Aaron. So that's a great question there. So if the Levitical priesthood had been able to bring people to perfection, then a superior priesthood from the order of Melchizedek would, ha would not have been needed. So what, what that's saying is Melchizedek was on the scene first, right? 
We understand that. And then comes God gives the Ten Commandments to Moses, the law, and he gives that out. And there's the Aaron or the Levitical priest. And so uh, so what comes next? That is why there, there, there needed to be a coming Messiah. That's why they're still looking for their Messiah. The Jewish people are still looking for their Messiah. They missed him. Come on, somebody. They missed him. They're still looking for that Messiah, one that would restore the Israelites' relationship with God, how many are glad that Jesus Christ is our great mediator, amen? Interestingly, after Abraham bowed to Melchizedek and worshipped him, nothing is heard of him. Quiet, this kind of mysterious guy, and, and, and nothing is heard of him until Psalms 110. Psalm 110, a thousand years later, he's brought back up in, in Psalms 110. And, and where we learn that the priest would not come from Aaron, but Melchizedek, the Messiah, would come from a greater one. So for verse 12 says, for when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. So if the Levitical priesthood had been able to bring people to perfection, then a superior priesthood from the order of Melchizedek would not have been needed, okay? You guys with me? Say if you're, if you're with me, say, I'm with you, Pastor. All right. For the rest of you, catch up with me, all right? You'll have to go back and re-listen to this. If there is now a new priesthood on the scene greater than Aaron and the Levites, then there must be a change in the law as well. Something, something's better. In other words, the rules of the game are changing, right? That's what happened. You know what change means here? The actual, if you look at that word change, it means removal. Removal. In other words, the believer under the new system is not under the law, but instead relies on the righteousness of Christ. Christ didn't come to destroy the law. He fulfilled the law. And because of Christ, you and I have access to God. Amen? Verse 13. For the one uh, of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served uh, at the altar. For it is evident uh, that our Lord was a descendant from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests, right? So we know that. So Levitical law, it's in the name. The priest had to be a Levite, okay? Levitical law, it had to be a Levite. So it's saying, hey, uh, you know, Christ came from the tribe of Judah and in connection and, tri and, and Moses said nothing about that to the priest. So this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, okay? This is pre-Aaron, pre okay? Verse 16, who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily <laughs> descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. That means it's coming from a higher place. It means it's coming from God. Verse 17, for it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So neither Jesus nor Melchizedek were of the tribe of Levi. So neither one of them, right? Uh, Melchizedek was before the tribes were even, even called. So he's he predates it, and Jesus is postdated, and he's he's of the tribe of Judah. He came from that tribe, and yet the father uh, talking to the son in Psalm one ten identified or made Jesus the priest after the order of Melchizedek. Hey, I'm I'm going back. Okay, verse eighteen. For on on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because 
of its weaknesses and usefulness. So verse 19, I like the way that it kind of prefaces that. For the new law, uh, or for the law made nothing perfect. Okay? I talked a little bit about this Sunday briefly. The only thing the law makes perfect is is our understanding that none of us can keep it. That's it. That's, that's what the, matter of fact, I, I said this, it's like a mirror. The law is a mirror, you know, and I said that Sunday. Man, the older I get, the more I don't like mirrors. Come on, somebody, right? And you look in the mirror and you say, man, Dad, where did you come from? <laughs> now you look like your dad or you look like your mom or, you know, you're getting older, you're getting wrinkles. Come on, somebody. And, and the law is like that. Or and Galatians says the law is like a schoolmaster. Don't do that. Can't do that, Johnny. Right? Can't do that. Don't do that. Sit down. I got some teachers in here going. So, therefore, Aaron and the Levites and priests were in a system unable to make you and me perfect. But all it did was show that we were imperfect. So, the Bible says this. And you say, hey, I've never murdered anyone. Right. But have you lied? And James would say it like this. You committed one command, or you, 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 you forfeited all of them. You, you've, you've committed all of them. If you've, if you've done one, you've done them all. Look at this. Next part of the scripture says this. But on the other hand, a better hope, everyone say a better hope, is introduced through which we draw near to God. That's why we can have statements like, come boldly before the throne of glory. And you know, because we can draw near to God. The better hope, the anchor who makes us perfect is Jesus. You know what I've learned? No matter what happens in my life, Jesus is steadfast. He's consistent. I may mess up, and I may get way over here, and Jesus is like, come on back, buddy. Come here and give me a hug. You're going to be all right. Come on. Anybody know what I'm talking about? I know the Lord doesn't talk to you like that, just me, right? Verse 20, and it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath. So this is, this is basically saying this. In, in the Levitical system, there was no swearing-in process. There was no school, no Bible school, nothing they had to go through. You know how you became a priest? My daddy is a Levite, so that makes me a Levite. So I'm automatically signed in to that, right? That's, that's, that's what it took. It was, it was based on your hereditary, right? Psalm 110.4 says this, the Lord has sworn and, and will not change his mind. God said something. Hey, I said this earlier. God said something. He's not going to change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So the Lord made an oath, not because he had to, but because he makes it relatable to us so that we can understand. Hey, I, gotta, I, gotta, I need to let you guys know if I said it, I'm going to come through with this. Look at this. By the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. So unlike the Levitical priesthood, Jesus had, had a, a, a swearing-in ceremony. Not, you know why? Because God said it. <laughs> That's it. It's pretty, pretty simple, right? Psalms 110.4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Look at this, verse 22. This makes Jesus... The guarantor or, or of a better co- covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevent, they were uh, prevented by death. 
from continuing in office. Because every priest died in the Levitical priesthood and was constantly changing, right? New people were coming in. People were dying. New priests came in. You know, it's just the, it's the process of life. But look at this, verse 24. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. According to uh, the Talmud, which is the codes of Jewish law, there were 18 high priests before the destruction of the first temple. From the first, so there was 18 high priests before that, and then and then there were 300 high priests uh, between that and the second uh, destruction of the second temple. And in the Levitical system, there were many priests over many years, right? But in the uh, Melchizedekian order, that's a big word right there. That's hard to say. There was only one priest, and not only uh, one, but but one who will hold it permanently and forever. You know why? Because he doesn't have a beginning and he doesn't have an end. And his name is Jesus Christ. Verse 25. Stick with me. We're almost done. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost, but those who draw near to God through him. So the Greek word for this, uh, for uttermost, means perfect or complete. I'm saved to the I am saved because of God's perfecting grace. Amen. I am complete because of God's grace. It, 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 I, I, you know, um, I wasn't kind of saved. I was completely saved. Come on, somebody, right? He is the author and the what perfecter of our faith is what Hebrews 12 t- tells us. And it says this, to keep our eyes on him, right? Keep our eyes on him. So draw near to him and be saved perfectly in him and through him. That's literally what that's saying. This Greek word also alludes to this, that it means to uh, uttermost means continually, over and 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 over, right? Every day we get up, we eat, right? Continually, over and over. It, and the Lord, it's, it's his, he is working on us. The, the word saving this verse speaks of sanctification. The continuing process will be completed. Eventually, one day when we get to heaven, that's glorification. You heard me talk, talk about that. First is justification, just as if I never sinned. Then is sanctification. As, I, as I'm saved, God, you know, he, he's working on me. There's things in my life that the Holy Spirit's helping me get out of my life. Come on, right? And I will not reach that glorified state until I get to heaven one day. Amen? So, so we learn that. So let me, let me put this all together for you. Jesus continues to save those who continue to come to him. That's why we have to keep our eyes on him, the, the author uh, and the finisher, the perfecter of our faith. So since he always lives to make intercession for them, what are you passionate about? Some of you may be passionate about church league softball. I wish you'd join our team. I'm just kidding. I'm just, I'm joking. I'm joking. Uh, some of you may be passionate about fixing cars. I know Jeff loves to fix old cars. He's amazing things, passionate about it. Some of you may be passionate musicians in here. Some of you may be passionate, sing loud in the car so no one can hear in here. Come on, somebody, right? Um, that's okay. You know what Jesus is passionate about? Interceding for you and me. That's what he wants to do. He's interceding for you and me. Since he always lives, that's what he's living for, (laughs) to intercede for you and me. That is good news for you and me. Most people think of intercession as, oh, I've sinned again, and Jesus is pleading in my case to the Father, and and, and God the Father wants to. I grew up thinking that God the Father is set up on the throne with a hammer just waiting to just slap everybody, right? Bad, 
right? And I had this bad view of that, you know, and, and you know, God so loved the world that he sent. God loved us, so, so I, I, you know, had to get that view out of my mind. But God, you know, uh, in chapter 1, we saw that after Christ had purged sin, Jesus went to the right hand of the throne of God and he sat down. Hebrews chapter 1, it says that. And Romans 8, 34 tells us that he sits on the right hand of the Father, the place of honor, making intercession for you and me. There's, there's a lot I could say about that. And listen to this. This is interesting. Remember, Jesus' wounds are proof that he works, that, that the work has been done, right? You remember the story, right, of Thomas, right? And you wouldn't believe until he saw his wounds. And so that's proof that, that the work has been done. His hands and his feet, his, his brow and his side, his stripes on his back, they, they settle the issue once and for all. Amen? His wounds are sufficient for God the Father to show mercy upon a sinner like you and me. Sometimes we, we think, you know, and I'm not going to say he, he doesn't intercede, he doesn't pray for us, but I think, you know, God looks down at his son and he sees the nail prints in his hand and he sees what he went through and he says, Mm. They deserve grace because of my son and the work that he's done. So remember, Tom, Thomas finally saw Jesus, and Jesus didn't say to him, hey, let's have a doctrinal talk here. No, no, he said, touch my wounds, Thomas. See who I am. Know me. And, and that's a beautiful thing. John 20, 27, verse 26 says this. For it was indeed fitting that we, we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Verse 27, he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered himself. So um, this is alluding a little bit to the Levitical priests before they could even uh, take a sacrifice for your sins. They had to go sanctify themselves and go through this process of sanctifying themselves. But Jesus, him who knew no sin, became sin, what? So that we might be what? The righteousness of God. It's a beautiful thing. Verse 28, for the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. So the author makes a case saying this, that the Levitical priesthood was flawed. The priest had, had physical sicknesses, right? They had spiritual problems, how many of you remember the story of Eli and his boys, you know? Hey, they were next in line to be priests, and, you know, and they got in trouble, right? The Lord looked, took care of them. And so, uh, and, and you know, they, they had spiritual problems, and they eventually kicked the bucket. That's a bad way of saying they died. Kicked the bucket. But why is, why, you know why? Because it's appointed for men to die, Hebrews 9.27. But look at this. Next, next verse says this. Next portion of this verse says this, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. All right. Think back to the sandlot. Forever. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Forever. No, forever. Christ paid the price. He's the Alpha and Omega. He is forever. It's beautiful, beautiful for us. So the author makes, uh, he makes this case saying this of the political, or of the Levitical, it's not the political, Levitical priesthood is flawed, but does not diminish the fact that in chapter 5, okay, go back to chapter 5, I want to point something, I'm coming to an end, okay, 
I want, I want to preface this. I'm going to pull something together. Hopefully I'll do this. Lord, help me to be able to do this. In, in, in chapter 5, when he discussed the priesthood of Aaron, okay, we're going back to Aaron and how they pointed with three characteristics that point to Jesus Christ, okay? So we know Melchizedek is a, is a higher priest. We know that that, is, that predates the law. But look at this. In Hebrews 5.1, it says this. Uh, number one, this is the first one. You can write this down. Uh, he was chosen among men, okay? This is, the, this is what an Aaron Levitical priest had to have. They were chosen among men. Uh, Hebrews 5.1 says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. I talked about this a couple weeks ago, maybe last week, I can't remember. Uh, but I talked about this, that the priest was between God and the people. Uh, the priest spoke to the people on behalf of God, and the priest also spoke to the Lord on behalf of people. He was the mediator. But look at this, so that we know that that's what Aaron says. But look at this, Hebrews 2.17 says this. says this about Jesus. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Christ came down and became a man. Come on, somebody. He left heaven. He left heaven, came down, and became a man. He dwelt among us, right? He dwelt among us. Look at this. So here's an, he offered sacrifices for sins. Look at this. Hebrews 5.3 says this. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. I talked about this just a second ago. So the high priest, before he could, in, uh, you know, uh, do a sacrifice for people, he had to go uh, sanctify himself first, okay? That was the process. But look at this. Hebrews seven twelve says this. He has no need, talking about Jesus, like those uh, high priests to offer sacrifices daily first for his own sins and then for those of the people since he uh, he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. He was the perfect sacrifice, the lamb without blemish, perfect, once and for all. Look at this. First, uh, the, here's the third one. He attained the position through lineage, okay? So Hebrews 5.4 says this, and, and no one takes the honor uh, for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So we know that the high priest in the Levitical thing had to come from the loins of Aaron and, and his family, and it had to be in the, the Levites. But look at this, okay? In the next verse, Hebrews 5.5, 5, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed. Everyone say appointed. By him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. So thus, Jesus completely fulfills this picture of uh, uh, and, and the type of Aaron's priesthood too. But but he is he is represented more fully in the Melchizedek order. Why, why is that important to you and to me? Okay, here's where we're going to get. Here's where the rubber meets the road right here, because every one of us is relating to Jesus in one of these two ways tonight. Many people relate to Jesus in the Arianic or the Levitical priesthood and the, where they see Jesus as this, a, a man who became like us, right? You know what Jesus did? He came down, dwelt among us. He, he suffered. He, he was tempted like us on all points, what Scripture tells us. He did not choose that position for himself, but only, man, he, he, man, he came under surrender of what the Father wanted him to do uh, uh, for himself, but he sought to glorify the Father to obtain salvation through sacrifice for us. And, and that is... 
that is as far uh, as as they go, and they don't. And people don't understand that Jesus is not only the fulfillment of this Levitical priesthood, but he is uh, uh, the fulfillment of Melchizedek. Melchizedek is not to, uh, to obtain salvation, but to maintain it. So here you go. Buckle up right here. Sit with me for just five minutes here, and I'll, 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 I'll bring this plane down to a nice soft landing, hopefully, all right? If it's turbulent, I'm sorry, all right? Melchizedek is not to obtain salvation, but to maintain it. So this is why Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us. He's, he's constantly working on our behalf. Amen? It's beautiful. So the Melchizedek order is a ministry of maintaining my salvation based upon his wounds, and, and it's a done deal. It is finished, right? Jesus didn't said, I'm just doing this portion. I'll come back and do the rest, right? No. Jesus, when he did something, he let his yes be a yes. He, he did it. It is finished. It's not like Wyatt. Dad, I'll do this a little bit later. No, you won't. I'll come back and do it for you later, right? I'll come back. And, no, no, no. Jesus, he, it is finished. And so it, it's interesting. So that means that when I, when I go about my day, when I'm having a tough situation, when I've missed reading my Bible for the last three months, come on, somebody, right, that I can drive in my car and go, I just, I feel lonely right now. And I just, I need you to, to speak to me. I, I, I know I'm not perfect. I know I've made some mistakes. I, I know I'm not perfect. I, I just need you right now. Isn't that a beautiful thing? There's no discussion of my worthiness. God doesn't say, oh, you're not worthy. Because he looks at his son and says, Because of it's not my worthiness that I'm free. It's not. Uh, uh, and here's the thing. Because of Jesus, I am totally and completely free. Amen. That's beautiful. That's a beautiful thing. Aaron's priesthood has, has, uh, is, was always working, right? Those guys were working day in, day out, sacrificing animals, doing this, uh, always pleading, always sacrificing. Melchizedek ordered there. There was nothing more to do. There was nothing more to say. It's done. It's done. It, it, it was done by our high, pri our high priest, Jesus Christ, on Calvary, right? So here's the point. Here's the point. And you say, boy, Pastor, you should have just said this point, and we would have been done a long time ago. The point of this is this. The author points to Jesus' priesthood, and he says, because of Melchizedek, that's the line that Jesus gave. His priesthood is superior to the one that you Jews know and have been believing. Amen? Amen? Will you do this with me?